I believe we're recording. Okay, everybody. So, welcome to the uh, welcome to the first seminar in our seminar series for first semester. Uh, the theme. I'm Lee Penman from the Institute uh, for Advanced Studies in the Humanities. The theme for this semester's uh, uh, for this semester is knowledge and its opposites. And I kind of made that up in a way because we had knowledge and this, knowledge and that as the uh, as the theme for prior seminar series. And, Sort of tongue in cheek, I came up with the idea of knowledge and its opposites, you know, knowledge and the other things. But um, we have a whole lineup of speakers during this semester uh, who will be talking about knowledge, but also unknowledge or agonatology. If knowledge is constructed, if knowledge is something that can be analysed and understood, so can categories of ignorance, the opposite of knowledge. At least that's as far as I've gone in terms of justifying. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll leave the rest of the heavy lifting, the intellectual heavy lifting to our speakers themselves. So, uh, tonight we're fortunate to have with us Andrew Mackenzie McCark, who is presently at the uh, Australian Catholic University at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry. Andrew did his PhD at the University of Erfurt in, uh, in Germany. And then he's been involved in a host of different placements and research projects. There was the Conspiracy Project at Cambridge University, Andrew, and also I saw that you were at Cornell briefly as well, but now you're in Melbourne, yep. and you've, you've chosen to come up here oh, and join us. And I began in Melbourne, I guess you could say, so it's been a long winding road, and uh, it's kind of like the circle has closed, I guess, in some ways, you could say. The circle is closed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, wonderful. Okay, so without further ado, uh, let's welcome Andrew McKenzie McCoy. Thank you. And I will begin with the, the usual thank yous, um, but in this case, they're more sincere than otherwise. <laughs> and normally, they're always fairly sincere, but this, in this case, I have a, a reason to be especially grateful because I was here in, um, at IASH. Just trying to work it out. Was it two or three years ago? It all becomes a little bit of a blur. Um, but uh, I was incredibly grateful to receive the fellowship and uh, I was annoyed also at the fact that I think it was going to be for a couple of months and it turned out to be only a kind of a couple of weeks because I had to head back to, uh, to Europe and uh, I kind of was, uh, I felt always a little bit guilty about that I thought I was maybe persona non grata here <laughs> and, uh, and at UQ uh, and then I remembered actually that uh, you were actually supposed to live with me for six months in Gorka and you okay, okay, this is like <laughs> He didn't even show up. He didn't even show up. Uh, so then I kind of realised that allayed my uh, feelings of guilt somewhat. So, uh, but, uh, yeah. I, but no, genuinely, it was great to. Uh, and James, of course, is a, a, an old colleague of mine, and we worked together on priestcraft, which is a topic which in some ways feeds into all of this. And so it was great to also meet uh, Peter also uh, when I was up here two or three years ago, and it's great to be back. So thank you for that. Um, I'm, and I will kind of like, yeah, repay, uh, well, demonstrate my gratitude by actually doing something which I was just saying to Lee and Peter, I actually really haven't had the opportunity to do that much, uh, and that is in kind of uh, unveil the, the project which I've been tinkering on and working on and uh, kind of the labour of love for quite a few years now, and I've been kind of talking around it, but not directly talking about it, and so this... Um, knowledge and its other others uh, was actually kind of useful because it really does give me the opportunity to unveil this project. Um, the project, um, it's, it's a book project and uh, I, 
I like the cover. I'm not entirely convinced about the title, The Hidden History of Conspiracy Theory. I, I'm still waiting for that epiphany where I go, ah, oh, there's the right title. If you've got other suggestions, then uh, you can perhaps let me know. Um, I will begin today, I want to, I'll begin in a way which is not so original by actually stealing from the beginning of another speech. Uh, David Foster Wallace, the, the famous writer, in 2005 at Kenyon College he was addressing the, the graduate class and he told this parable of the fish, and so forgive me if some of you have heard this before, but I'll simply read it out. There are, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? Now, Wallace's speech addressed issues of consciousness, and the two young fish, the younger fish, are not conscious of water, even though they live in it. So how is this relevant to today's talk? Most historians and social scientists are in agreement that there have been conspiracies, conspiracy theories that have been around for a very long time. Some even kind of make the argument that there are an anthropological constant. We've been talking conspiracy theories for a long time, but it's only relatively recently that we've been talking about conspiracy theories. In other words, the long history of conspiracy theory is the long history of a primary discourse. The secondary discourse which reflects upon and comments upon conspiracy theories is a far more recent vintage. And it would seem that humans have been swimming in the conspiracy theory water for a very long time, but they had no consciousness of this fact. So how, why, when did this change? Now, if we return to Wallace's parable of the fish, this question shifts the focus onto the older fish. So how does this older fish know what water is? because of experience, and of what kind of experience. Now, it might, be kind of, uh, it might be bad form, and even kind of slightly sacrilegious, to suggest an improvement upon the, the words of a revered speech from a revered writer. But I remember thinking when I first heard this story, that it would have made more sense, sense if the, the older fish was actually a frog, and if the frog kind of hops down to the edge of the pond, and pokes its head into the water and sees these two young fish and says, how's the water? The reason being, of course, that frogs are amphibious, that they move between land and water. And I developed this thought um, because it contains a useful hint. We perceive things on the basis of a difference to other things. So to give a kind of a little bit more of any, uh, an academic example, uh, take tradition. Karl Mannheim, the Hungarian-German-Jewish sociologist, uh, who established the field of the sociology of knowledge, distinguished between traditionalism and conservatism. Now, conservatism was a political ideology that, according to Mannheim's reconstruction of its history, emerged in the wake of the French Revolution, um, and indeed it was kind of a reaction against the ideals and the consequences of the French Revolution. Traditionalism, on the other hand, was kind of almost this unthinking tendency to simply do today what had been done tomorrow, to simply kind of repeat the patterns of yesterday. Um, I guess in some ways it kind of corresponds to a cultural inertia. The important point, though, is that a traditionalist society has absolutely no awareness of tradition as an abstract concept. It is only when things begin to change in a way and at a pace 
that there is a perception of this change that an awareness of tradition actually develops. And then tradition advances to become kind of a source of legitimacy uh, for long-standing institutions and practices, particularly in, from the conservative perspective. So these examples suggest that we do indeed perceive things on the basis of the difference to other things. And then this raises the question, what is the difference on the basis of which humans started to, to perceive conspiracy theories? And so we can kind of test out a few, uh, a few possibilities. Um, you might say, for example, uh, maybe it was enlightened. I mean, there's something which is unenlightened about conspiracy theories. And so maybe enlightenment then provides the contrast which makes the observation of conspiracy theories possible in the first place. Um, of course, you know, then you might ask, well, what is enlightenment? And of course, that's a question with a certain pedigree. Uh, and you all think of the, the famous essay by Immanuel Kant in 1784 in the pages of the, 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 the journal of the Berlin Monatschrift, What is Enlightenment? Um, let me just simply say that it's interesting if you leap through that journal, because there you have the writings of those people who admired Kant and who were kind of like the partisans with him in the fight for enlightenment, and the pages teem with conspiracy theories. And in particular, there are all these suspicions of the Jesuits, or rather the ex-Jesuits, the Jesuit order had been suspended in 1773, and there was the fear that the Jesuits had actually gone underground and were infiltrating secret societies. But the point simply being that these are people of the Enlightenment who are espousing conspiracy theories. And I only kind of point that out because it would then kind of cast some doubt on this notion that Enlightenment and conspiracy theories is the kind of the contrast, that, that they can coexist, they can cohabitate on the pages of the very same journal. So we can try out a, 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 different, a different possibility. Uh, what about common sense? You might say you know, conspiracy theories, they've got a reputation for being outlandish, um, and therefore, you know, if you just use your common sense, then you can kind of recognise and identify and also dismiss conspiracy theories. Um, common sense, I mean, of course, it's once more one of these kind of categories, these concepts, which is... Uh, um, well, we actually had in Cambridge, we had Sophia Rosenfeld, who came and who wrote this wonderful book, Common Sense, A Political History. And common sense, of course, is a concept where you kind of think, well, we all just simply know what common sense is. It kind of puts forth the claim that everyone innately knows what common sense is and that there's no real necessity for further debate. But as she shows in this great book, that it really is a contentious issue what common sense is. Let me simply point out there once more that if you have a look at kind of a lot of populist rhetoric, and of course populism, one of these kind of political phenomena that, uh, you know, in waves... Um, influences our politics and at the moment it seems to be experiencing a little bit of a high watermark. You listen to the kind of like the populace and they talk on the one hand about appealing to the common sense of the people and at the same time they, um, they talk about these kind of uh, conspiracy theories about the elites and the experts and whatnot. And so once more you see that kind of like common sense and conspiracy theory can exist uh, side by side, at least within the context of populism, which would suggest that it's not really kind of common sense that makes conspiracy theories observable. You might have guessed what the answer actually is by simply reading, or well, the answer that I believe um, answers the question about what is the uh, what makes conspiracy theories observable uh, from from the, the, the title of my my lecture. 
I think it was something like the shadow of social science. And so the claim that I'm making is that basically social science is what really uh, jumpstarts this discussion about conspiracy theories and makes them uh, perceptible in the first place. Now, there's a, there's a kind of a, a manageable amount of, social, of literature on uh, social science literature on conspiracy theories. It's not as if, if you kind of go through the history of social science, the conspiracy theory is this overriding obsession uh, for, for the social sciences. Um, it's, as I said, it's manageable, it's not daunting. What is daunting at the moment is that, I mean, there's a lot of research into this field and it's kind of like the amount of literature is increasing at a daunting rate. But if you kind of leaf through your Weber and your Durkheim and your, your Simmel, um, you'll find a lot of interesting ideas that are helpful for reflecting upon conspiracy theory, but you don't find engagements on their part with this phenomenon of conspiracy theory. We can kind of start to apprehend more precisely the specific way in which social science induced an awareness of conspiracy theory by looking at those figures who made major contributions to the conceptualization of conspiracy theory and who are the major protagonists of my project. So let me introduce them. Um, so we have um, the, the French historian Augustin Cochin, who was born into one of the grand bourgeois families of Paris, devoutly Catholic, uh, a royalist, ardently royalist, and also passionately patriotic. He dies on the battlefields. Uh, he dies at the Somme in First World War. In First World War. Uh, then we move on to Charles Beard, who was the, kind of the great American progressive historian of the early 20th century. Born in a small town in Indiana, and he went on to become really what was the, the, the most prominent American historian. Uh, let's move on to Popper, Karl Popper, the philosopher of science who also, of course, he ventured onto the fields of social science and history. And then finally, the American historian, Richard Hofstadter, who I'm going to kind of push to the side a little bit uh, for reasons that will become apparent. Uh, admittedly, they're all white males, but even within this cohort, there is a, a kind of a big diversity. Uh, Cochin, French, Catholic, conservative, beard, Midwestern American, Protestant, progressive, and Popper, Viennese, Jewish background, and, uh, and liberal in his kind of political outlooks. Furthermore, it's interesting, they, there are no biographical intersections. So they live pretty much in complete ignorance of each other. Um, and I've never found even one reference within these first three of a, you know, a, a reference for, of, from one of them to another one of them. Uh, what they do have in common is that they're not per se social scientists, but historians or historiographers. I introduced that term because Popper obviously wrote about history, but was not a, a traditional historian, but he thought intensely about history. And indeed, the fact that they were all, to varying degrees and in different ways, outsiders to the historical profession might explain why they did engage in this reflection upon history and the historical uh, and the social sciences. I think kind of academic professionalism is marked by the establishment of university departments, the publications of journals, the establishment of journals and periodicals, organisations of conferences. But of course, professionalism also bestows upon its beneficiaries the privilege of not really having to think about what you are doing, of simply adhering to the professional practice and the professional standards without reflecting on them. 
And that wasn't the case for these first three. I mean, Koshan came from a very wealthy family. He was a private scholar. He lived a very reclusive life. He only published in his lifetime a, short pam- a, a very short pamphlet. Beard, in a highly public gesture, in 1916, resigned from his professorship at uh, Columbia University in protest against the wartime suspicion of, uh, sus- suppression of free speech and spent the, the rest of his life living in a small town in a corner of Western Connecticut, uh, obviously writing and publishing a lot. And of course, it was Popper's experience of exile that made him into an outsider, even during his kind of long tenure at the London School of Economics. So thinking about history meant for all three of them, thinking about its relationship to the social sciences and beyond that, thinking about the relationship of history and the social sciences to the natural sciences. Hofstadter is a little bit different, um, and I just wanted to touch upon this because one of the specific features of social science, uh, you might call it its bifocalism, that social phenomena can be analysed with a view to the individual or a view to society in general. So if we just jump there to, I mean, if you just take a kind of like a, a, an example of a phenomenon such as, uh, such as suicide, it's a kind of a rather morbid example, but I mean, um, I mean, I guess the psychologists can have obviously, or psychologists who are trained, for example, here in the kind of psychoanalytical tradition, can look to kind of Freud and uh, consider his kind of ideas about uh, Thanatos, the, the, the death drive and whatnot, and use that to kind of fashion a description of what suicide is and an explanation. Another alternative, of course, represented here by Durkheim, um, with his inquiry into suicide. Um, based on empirical observations that in the aggregate suicide as a social phenomenon, uh, as he points out, was more prevalent in Protestant communities than in Catholic ones. But he's not looking at individual stories, but basically kind of like the community as a whole. Uh, Conspiracy theory provides a demonstration of this bifocalism as it is created by the alternative... um, the bifocalism that emerges as a result of these alternative viewpoints of the individual and society or of psychology and sociology. In the course of the 20th century, two dominant concepts arose. Uh, Conspiracy theory, which as we see kind of had a sociological provenance. Uh, The alternative from the psychological angle was uh, the paranoid style, a term that was coined by Hofstadter in 1959 and as is obvious from its appeal to paranoia, had a far more kind of psychological profile. Now, alternative formulations for the same phenomenon remind us that the names slash concepts we use are not natural or set in stone, but that instead a degree of contingency attends upon their historical emergence. So, I mean, for the most part, our, our attitude towards concepts, it's, it's akin to our attitude to the well-worn furniture which clutters our houses. It's kind of become so familiar that it hardly registers anymore. Conceptual history, and that's kind of like something which I'm invested in here, it entails a willingness to suspend this state, and one of the most effective ways to stop taking concepts for granted is to recall the alternative formulations to which the historical record tests. And perhaps even you can kind of imagine the alternative parallel universes whose inhabitants operate and communicate with different conceptual architectures. Thus, we are prompted to ask, when we speak of conspiracy theories, why do we speak of conspiracies? 
And when we speak of conspiracy theories, why do we speak of theories? And these are going to be the kind of like the two lines of inquiry that I'll deal with in today's talk. So, I mean, my ambition with this project is to combine intellectual biography with, um, with uh, conceptual history. There's a second point I'd just like to make about this method of uh, conceptual history. Um, I mean, as I just said, it entails a willingness to no longer take the concepts we use for granted, but to reconstruct their genealogies, to recognise their shortcomings, uh, to admit their historical contingency. Conceptual history also entails a willingness to listen to words and not just the people who are speaking or writing them. And this is because the words, the concepts, have their own stories to tell. They have their own memories. And I have to kind of also demonstrate that with today's talk, but just at the outset, let me just kind of take the shortcut of appealing to greater authority. Walter Ong, the 20th century Jesuit philosopher of culture, media and communication, wrote, quote, Concepts have a way of carrying their etymologies with them forever. The elements out of which a term is originally built usually, and probably always, linger somehow in subsequent meanings, perhaps obscurely, but often powerfully, and even irreducibly. It was a sentiment that was then echoed, though I don't think, um, I think independently, uh, by the, the, the Canadian philosopher Ian Hacking, who kind of said essentially the same thing in his quote is, quote, concepts have memories. Some of our philosophical problems about concepts are the result of their history. Our perplexities arise not from, their de- not from that deliberate part of our history which we remember, but from that part which we forget. And I hope to demonstrate the truth of these statements uh, in the rest of this lecture. Now, I'm aware of the fact that, I mean, it's, it's conceivable that uh, this might be a little bit of a disappointment in terms of, you know, conspiracy theory. It's got this kind of uh, uh, sensational, lurid reputation and perhaps you've come here expecting kind of, um, uh, you know, insights into faked moon landings and um, (laughs) uh, what are the other ones? Like reptilian bloodlines of our human masters or satanic rituals in the basements of pizza parlours and um, uh, if you don't get all of those references then uh, so much the better for you I would say but um, I mean I can just understand that uh, this reaction to my focus and my method might be that you know there seems to be no better way to suck the life out of what is actually a really intriguing concept by talking about conceptual history and whatnot. Um, and so I guess you know, I'm duty-bound to take simply one step in that direction by pointing out that in fashioning an explanation for how we have come to talk about conspiracy theory, I am, in fact, competing with a conspiracy theory. In other words, there is a conspiracy theory to explain the emergence of the concept of conspiracy theory, kind of a, a meta-conspiracy theory. Uh, and it revolves around this document on the right. Uh, it's a CIA dispatch 1035-960. And the claim that the CIA invented the term in 1967, if you kind of simply Google it, you'll find it on the internet. This has been pushed even from within academia uh, by in particular this one uh, professor, professor of policy and administration at Florida State University. Lance to Haven Smith. I'll simply kind of just quote what he says. The term conspiracy theory is no ordinary phrase. 
It was deployed by CIA technocrats who were trained to break people psychologically, destroy relationships, tear apart governments, stir up old hatreds. These are scientists who are, in part, who are part of an organization that has overthrown powerful regimes and it is partly responsible for the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, that is the CIA. The reach of these people should never be underestimated. And so he calls this, he, he, he admits that you can actually, by just doing your kind of your standard Google book search, you can find earlier mentions of the term conspiracy theory, but he kind of believes that it was, um, it was fed into the, the lifeblood of American social public discourse by the CIA in 1967. Now, in fact, if you take the time to read CIA Dispatch, it's an interesting document. Uh, you find a CIA exercise in public relations. By 1967, the finding of the Warren Commission was being questioned by a growing, and that was the finding, obviously, that Kennedy had been killed as a result of a lone assassin and not as a result of a conspiracy, the official kind of version of what occurred there in Dallas back in 1963. Uh, if you read this, then, as I said, it's a public exercise um, to offset the influence of this growing community of sceptics who were kind of meeting at their self-organised conferences, um, they were exchanging ideas, they were circulating newsletters and they were publishing books. And of course a lot of their kind of their conspiracy theories, they weren't calling them that at, the sta at that stage necessarily, but um, they were about, they, they posited some involvement of the CIA in Kennedy's assassination. And so the CIA, which obviously wasn't a very old institution, it emerged out of the Office of Strategic Services in World War II, uh, we kind of just say that the CIA has been there forever. I mean, it wasn't like that. They were aware of the fact that, I mean, these rumours were jeopardising the public standing of the CIA. And so if you read the document, I mean, the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists are used only once, and there is no indication that they were coined and then deployed to malign these amateur investigators um, that were querying the, the official version of uh, um, the, the assassination of, of, of Kennedy. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting document because, like, and, and the, the claim is interesting because it points to these genuine dilemmas. How should intelligence agencies which trade in secrecy interact with the public? Um, the fact that for my conceptual history of conspiracy theory, there is a conspiracy theory of conspiracy theory, illustrates a broader characteristic of attempts to study conspiracy theory. So it's not enough to simply study them. Historians and social scientists also need to distance themselves from them, to draw boundaries, and to engage in what the sociologist of science, Thomas Geeran, called boundary work. Studying conspiracy theories requires us, therefore, to multitask. We need to combine the object work, that is based on studying the object, with boundary work that ensures that our resultant explanations are clearly distinguished from conspiracy theories. In the last, in, the, in this, the, what remains of my talk, my intention is to apply a combination of intellectual biography and conceptual history by considering alternatives to each part of the concept conspiracy theory. So first, we will consider an alternative to conspiracy, namely devil, and second, we will consider alternative an alternative to theory, namely myth. In speaking of the devil theory, our point or rather our personal reference, is Charles Beard. So this is Life magazine 1944, and uh, 
Uh, it's not often that historians made it onto the cover of Life magazine. I would venture to suggest that that's probably the only time that a historian was on the cover of Life magazine. But it speaks to Beard's status as a public intellectual. And it was a status that Beard established back in 1913 with the publication of an economic interpretation of the Constitution. George Bancroft, the leading 19th century American historian, described the process by which the American Republic laid down its fundamental law in the following manner, quote, by calm meditations and friendly counsels, the American people prepared a constitution. Beard scoffed at such pieties, and in his book he revealed how a group of proto-capitalist merchants and bankers had drafted and then organised the ratification of the constitution in order to further their business interests. And if you consider today simply how ardently Americans continue to worship at the altar of the Constitution, then the provocation of Beard's interpretation becomes apparent. He wasn't a Marxist, but he was uh, someone who espoused what he claimed was the theory of economic determinism. Here, uh, history is determined by economics. Uh, and one realises this if one ignores all the empty, the empty record. Beard was furthermore not just a historian, but as these book titles indicate, he was someone who was clearly invested in the social sciences. Uh, it is worth mentioning that I have never found Beard actually use the concept conspiracy theory, which might therefore raise the question, what was he, what's he doing in my, in my book? He certainly, let me just firstly say, he certainly encountered the concept of the conspiracy theory, um, and that's apparent from these documents here. Just quickly, the background. In 1882, Roscoe Conklin, who was the one-time party leader, um, the, the, the Congress leader for the, the Republicans, and, and a formidable lawyer, he argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of a Californian railroad, co rail, railroad company that the terms used in the 14th Amendment were not accidental. The 14th Amendment was one of the Reconstruction Amendments. It was one of these amendments that was supposed to be a nail in the coffin of slavery. They were passed, these amendments were passed after the Civil War. Um, the 14th Amendment guarantees certain rights, such as the right to a fair trial and the right to due process, to not just citizens, but to persons. And according to Conklin, when he was arguing in front of the Supreme Court, the original use of the term citizen had been replaced at the last minute in the final version of the amendment by the far more capacious term person. And the reason Conkling made this claim is the person kept, could be extended to cover artificial persons, namely corporations. So Conkling himself had actually participated in the actual drafting committee for the amendment. And if you weren't willing to believe his testimony on these grounds, he brought an old journal written at the time, and he was kind of waving it around uh, in, the, in the proceedings, in the trial, uh, a journal that recorded the deliberations of this committee. And he said that this journal contained the evidence that actually the, uh, those, those men drafting that amendment were also thinking not just of slaves, but also of corporations. Now, an interesting question was what happened to this journal. The journal went missing, but a colleague of Beard's at Columbia University found the journal, and then Beard picked up on this story, and he began to push this kind of what became known as the conspiracy theory of the 14th Amendment. This was a term that was framed by, uh, a term that was coined by this scholar, and you might be able to read that, Howard J. Graham. And 
the idea, of course, was that you know the 14th Amendment had become a Trojan horse which, with which big business had smuggled their interests into the Constitution in ways that were kind of favourable for the promotion and protection of these interests. Graham then did this kind of painstaking historical reconstruction to realize, and realise that Conkling back in 1882 had actually been misleading the court and that was actually not true. And so he wrote then to Beard and it's somewhat hard, I, I found this letter um, in Beard's papers and just the first, um, he sent obviously an off-print of this article to Beard and he said, Doc, Dear Dr Beard, this instalment writes Finnis on the conspiracy theory for the present. And so he was claiming that he had proved that this idea that the 14th Amendment was basically framed in such a way that business interests piggybacked on the back of the slaves uh, in achieving this expansion of their rights. He said that that was a conspiracy theory and that he had proven it wrong. Just as another interesting context in which Beard, or his name is always mentioned in the context of conspiracy theories, and that is Pearl Harbor. Um, Pearl Harbor, the, the attack on the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December the seventh, nineteen forty-one. Now, there's been a lot of conspiracy theorising revolving around Pearl Harbor, and it's zeroed in on this allegation of foreknowledge. Did Roosevelt and some of his confidants know in advance about the Japanese plans to attack, but do nothing because the attack would deliver the desired Castle's Valley? that would make American entry into World War II inevitable. And figures such as the journalist George Morgenstern made this allegation in the book Pearl Harbor, The Story of the Secret War. Beard himself was a little bit agnostic about this particular issue, and uh, he was convinced that, but he was convinced that Roosevelt had misled the American people, promising in public to keep America out of the war while secretly pursuing a foreign policy behind the curtains designed to provoke the Japanese attack and you know, provoke them into making this kind of preemptive strike. The charges made against Beard and Morgenstern and a few of the other kind of these historians in their circle did not actually use the term conspiracy theory. Instead, another concept was used, as is evident from this letter, in which Beard reported to Morgenstern how his book had been reviewed by the historian and publicist Walter Millis. Dear Mr. Morgenstern, as you have doubtless noted, Mr. Millis attacks my book in the Herald Tribune today. He complains about my failure to consider quotations in their context, but he does not put his quotations from my devil theory of war in the context of the book as a study of the nine munitions investigations years, years ago. I will get to what the nine munitions investigation was, but firstly, there were multiple reviews charging Beard with peddling a devil theory. And the irony here was that the reviewers and critics were throwing back in Beard's face a concept which he himself had coined many years earlier in 1936 when public discussion was dominated by the talk of the Nye Committee. Now, I've come to the Nye Committee, but let me just also say there is a greater irony here, and simply if you consider the story of the 14th Amendment, the story of Pearl Harbor, they demonstrate that Beard himself was highly susceptible to the allures of conspiracy theorising, what we today call conspiracy theorising. In fact, all three of my protagonists, Cochin, Beard, Popper share this trait. Their contributions to the conceptualization of conspiracy theory came about as attempts to check 
what they realised were problematic tendencies within their own thought. Conspiracy theory as a concept was born, one might say, out of a form of intellectual self-therapy. Now, the Nye Committee, to come to that, was named after Robert Nye. He was a Republican senator from Idaho. And it was convened in response to public sentiment in the 1930s. The public was unsettled. Hitler had seized power in Germany. Um, and obviously, I mean, Hitler was clear that you know, he was someone who was uh, invested in reversing the, the Versailles Treaty. Uh, he had this kind of aggressive policy towards the East. And people were fearful of this outbreak once more of hostilities. And so this, um, the, the Nye Committee was convened to inquire into the involvement of munition makers and bankers in uh, America's intervention in the First World War. And Beard then wrote this pamphlet, um, The Devil Theory of War, an inquiry into the nature of history and the possibility of keeping out of war. Now, the second part, keeping out of war, obviously references this isolationist attitude. Um, the first part of the title, an inquiry into the nature of history, reflects how Beard's engagement in these issues was underscored by preoccupations with fundamental questions relating to history and the relationship of historians to it. And in the 1930s, when Beard was already in his 60s, he embarked on a phase in his life characterised by this intense re-examination of the tenets of historical scholarship. Now, part of this actually arose from the fact that he had a German son-in-law who was actually feeding him literature from Germany and a lot of the kind of the currents of intellectual thought in Europe and specifically Germany in the 1930s. Most American historians are totally oblivious to it all, but uh, Beer, for example, was reading Karl Mannheim, who I mentioned before, and when in 1936 he was asked what is the greatest work that has been written so far in the 20th century, he pointed to Karl Mannheim's ideology and utopia. Um, Beard used these kind of ideas from Mannheim to call into question the whole idea of historical objectivity and he began to profess this historical relativism saying that you can't, um, the historian always is uh, obliged to reflect upon their prejudices and their own unique perspective onto history and you can't simply presume that by looking at the primary sources and following the standard practice that the history that results is objective. It also requires kind of this self-reflection because his, his, the historical perspective is also always relative. Another more eccentric thing was that Beard began to question the whole notion of historical causation and in particular that was prompted by World War I, the experience of World War I. I mean, we know about World War II and it's kind of obvious, you know, well, it seems obvious, therefore, you know, who was the, who was the aggressor in World War II. It was certainly not that like that after World War I. And obviously there was lots of debate about whether the central powers or the allied powers bore the brunt of the responsibility for what had happened in World War I, where you had these kind of like obligations, mutual kind of entreaties, and the whole thing just kind of spiralled out of control until you had the kind of like the... The, the carnage on the battlefields of World War One. Beard then also looked at the kind of like not just World War One in general, but the American intervention into World War One, and the standard uh, account of what caused American intervention into World War One was the, the the submarine attacks which the Germans had launched against American ships um, who were not entirely neutral at that stage because they were bringing supplies to the Allied powers. 
Beard writes, why call it the cause? Why not make the cause of action that why not make the cause the action of allied governments in imposing an illegal blockade on Germany? Why stop in the search for causes with the British action? Why not attribute the cause to the action of the United States government in acquiescing in British action? And one kind of senses from these passages how this whole notion of causality simply began to dissolve in his mind. And it was this uncertainty about causation that caused Beer to disavow all simple explanations that found the cause of events cause of an event in the actions of one party and that then indulged in kind of scapegoating with it when this um, event had a negative character. Also integrated into Beard's rejection of what he called the devil theory was a, reject- a rejection of interpretations that reduce history to a clash between good and evil. And this kind of Manichaean duality, according to Beard, was a supernatural way of viewing history and it was incompatible with a modern enlightened world view. And so Beard's aim was to flag down all explanations that invoked evil as an operative principle in history and then to dismiss them as manifestations of the devil theory. It's hardly surprising that he then kind of latches onto this notion of the devil to fulfil that function in a metaphorical sense. But there's an interesting backstory there because Beard's grandfather had originally been a Quaker and he had been actually read out of meeting as they called it, read out of meeting on account of marrying a woman who was a Methodist. And this expulsion transformed him from a kind of a wavering, not the Methodist exactly, um, but so he wasn't, a, he wasn't a Quaker anymore, he didn't become a Methodist, he became kind of what he described as a seeker. Um, he, he, he embarked on this quest, this is the grandfather, for a new spiritual home, and in the course of time, it, kind of, it was a typical 19th century story. It matured into this more detached, neutral fascination in religion, in the history of religion. And so he started to collect works on Buddhism. He started to collect copies of the Quran. Um, he also collected, uh, he, in the collection, there was uh, Howard's History of Priestcraft. And so actually Beard refers to Priestcraft a couple of times, and I'm sure that's from looking at his grandfather's library. Um, he had also in the collection Daniel Defoe's The Political History of the Devil from 1926. Now, there's been a lot of dispute about how you interpret this particular work from Defoe. It's one of his kind of later works. It seems that Defoe was alarmed by the bold statements of the deists who gave no credence to scriptural accounts of the devil. And Defoe was fearful that that was the kind of the slippery slope that would actually end up with them also not just denying the existence of the devil, but also denying the existence of God. And so Defoe was adamant that the devil had a real presence in history. And indeed, the existence of the devil, it was not, he, he was dismissive of the supernatural, uh, or, the, or he was dismissive of the superstitious. So things that go bump in the night, if you kind of ascribe that to the devil, he said that's ridiculous. But he said that there is this evil operating in history. And just one quote. Um, so there's the, the foe's work. And the, this sowing of seeds of strife in the world and bringing nations to fight and make war upon one another would take, would take up a great part of the devil's history. For there have been many great, there have been very great conflagrations kindled in the world by the artifice of hell under this head, viz of making war. And Beard was just by chance leafing through this old book, uh, Defoe's uh, History of the Devil, and came across such passages, and that was the inspiration uh, for this kind of notion of the devil theory. The reason I just want to quickly say, I'll just sum this up at this period, um, this part of the talk up, by noting that 
in the course of the 1960s and the 1970s, you actually still find a lot of people using devil theory rather than conspiracy theory, but you also kind of see cases where they're starting to become, they're starting to be synonymized, they're starting to become synonymous and used interchangeably. The thing which I haven't really fully worked out was why was it the devil theory that retreated into the background? Why was it eclipsed by conspiracy theory? So we have this situation today where people kind of scratch their heads if you mention the devil theory, but everyone knows about conspiracy theories. I think it's important, though, simply because, I mean, conspiracy is political, theory, as we'll see, is scientific. But there is a real religious dimension to conspiracy theories. And in, of late, we've had kind of scholars who are once more kind of really unearthing this whole dimension of conspiracy theories, as you can see, with um, um, these kind of just literature which uh, um, addresses this particular dimension of conspiracy theory. And once more, it's just one of these kind of things where I think if you start reconstructing the conceptual history, you'll see, okay, if you consider, you know, devil theory, there was, I mean, if it had been devil theory, this reference to the devil uh, foregrounds this religious aspect of conspiracy theory. Let's move on to something else which is also slightly religious, namely myth. And the person I want to kind of like, um, I'll talk about Karl Popper here, because Popper philosopher of science and an intellectual historian, um, though some people will question the quality of his uh, intellectual his, uh, uh, ventures into intellectual history. Um, but um, he obviously invested a lot of energy in uh, thinking about what a theory is because he was a philosopher of science and what the epistemological status of a theory is. But there was the option of myth. And I just want to kind of show you that, I mean, a lot of the time, if you have a look at the kind of the historiography of dealing with what we today would say are conspiracy theories, people weren't talking about theory, they're talking about myth. And just as one example from 1967, Norman Cohen's Warrant for Genocide, a problematic book, but it's still the standard interpret, the standard kind of account of the protocols of the elders of Zion, this fabrication that began to circulate in the early 20th century, um, which claims that... Uh, the Jewish elders are behind basically the whole process of modernization, which has undermined the old um, Western civilization, perhaps you'd say, or, or the Christian, um, the, well, the, yeah, the, the, the old order based on the throne and the altar, and that the, the uh, Jews are the agents of, of modernity. Cohen uh, calls that the myth of the Jewish world conspiracy. Um, J.M. Roberts writes about uh, something which I've kind of looked into, but uh, he was one of the pioneers actually of kind of just looking actually at the kind of the, the secret societies, the mythologies which they created, but also the myths about the secret societies, which was, you know, we call them conspiracy theories. He decided to um, address that under the heading of the mythology of the secret societies. Raoul Girardet, Mythe Mythologie Politique, Mythologie Politique, pardon. He, uh, a French historian who looks at these kind of mythologies, um, the first of them I think is the, the mythology of salvation, then there's the mythology of unity, but he also has a big chapter about the mythology of the, the conspiration, the, the, the mythology of the conspiracy. Um, Cubitt uh, is an interesting historian who in 1989 actually tried to work out what the relationship is, but used both terms, conspiracy myths and conspiracy theories, in this um, publication, published in a fairly obscure place at the, in the Journal for Anthropological Studies, uh, the, jur the Journal of the Anthropological Society of Oxford. Um, but it's an important, um, an important 
contribution because it kind of examines or posits one way of thinking about conspiracy theories by contrasting them with what he calls a conspiracy myth. And just finally, as an example from the, the, the German literature, uh, Johannes Regala from Bieberstein, 1978, publishes his PhD dissertation, and he calls it Die These von der Verschwörung, the thesis of the conspiracy, but when he actually comes up with a re-edition in 2000, a new edition in 2008, he has decided by this stage that actually we're not talking about theories, we're talking about myths. And he calls it the mythos von der Verschwörung, the, the myth of the conspiracy. In making sense of this distinction between conspiracy myth and conspiracy theory, we, th- we can begin with a very general remark about science as it has emerged as a distinct field of modern society. Modern science operates with two distinctions. First, the internal distinction between true and false, and second, the external distinction between scientific and non-scientific. And as an illustration of how these distinctions operate, we can recall the manner in which the Austrian physicist Wolfgang Pauli would express his exasperation when dismissing solutions proposed by colleagues. He would say, this is not only not right, it is not even wrong. <laughs> not even wrong. I lived in Germany for such a long time, you'd think I'd be able to do a better German impersonation than that, but that's as good as it's going to get, I think. It's not even wrong. Um, it was the ultimate insult, you know, because it was the alleged solution he was claiming was not even worth the effort of asking whether it was true or false, because it did not even pass the test of being scientific. Now, the implication of Pauli's outburst was, though, that a wrong solution was not simply because it was wrong any less scientific than a right or a true solution. Transferred to theories, you could say, just because a theory might be wrong, or indeed does turn out to be wrong, does not mean that it is not scientific. In fact, the claim that only those theories that are potentially wrong, that can be falsified by empirical tests, that they're the only genuinely scientific theories was, of course, the claim of another Austrian, namely Karl Popper. And this was his famous criteria of falsifiability, falsifiability that solved what he called was the demarcation problem, the problem of separating scientific statements from non-scientific statements, be those statements metaphysical, pseudoscientific, or mythical. And, of course, that's the difference between myths and theories. Theories are scientific and myths are not. And given that we, as I've just demonstrated, find frequent references to conspiracy myths, and as we've just seen, sorry, as we've just seen, you know, there are these references to conspiracy myths, the conceptual history reveals that we've never really been entirely sure about whether we should deal with this phenomenon according to the first distinction of true or false, or whether we should deal with it according to the second distinction of scientific and non-scientific. The decision to deal with conspiracy theories on the basis of the true-false distinction has yielded the term conspiracy theory. But there has been a frequent recourse to this other possibility involving an appeal to the scientific-non-scientific distinction, and it's as a result of that that we start to talk about not conspiracy theories, but conspiracy myths. Karl Popper, in 1948, in in July in 1948, gave a lecture at Magdalene College in Oxford, and he introduced there the notion of the conspiracy theory of society. There are some of the notes. You can see conspiracy theory, some of these, just because he didn't write it out. He was so brilliant that he could just kind of ad-lib it. Um, not like me. But um, he um, um, there talks about um, 
Well, there was a, let me just simply say there was, a, there was a specific context for this. And Popper was trying to work out the basis for the social sciences and specifically for sociology that would justify their status as scientists. Of course, no one doubts that you know, physics or chemistry or biology is a science, but the claim of a discipline such as sociology to be a science has always been a little bit more precarious. And so Popper decided to proceed ex negativo. He would contrast the scientific theories with a non-scientific theory, or rather a myth. And the fact that he was aware of the similarity to myths is evident in his claim that the conspiracy theory of society, as evident, for example, in the protocols of the Elders of Zion, was essentially a modern version of the Homeric myths. He writes, this theory, that is the theory put forth by the protocols, is akin to Homer's theory of society. You kind of ask yourself, that's anachronistic, that Homer never thought of, but of course there's a, a theory of society. Homer conceived the power of the gods in such a way that whenever, whatever happened on the plain before Troy was only a reflection of the various conspiracies on Olympus. Popper's strategy, and it was essentially the same for Beard and for Koshan, though of course in Popper's case it's more formalised because he was within an elaborated philosophy of science, Popper opted to treat the myth as a theory because one thing that you can do with theories is that you can refute them. And so Popper submitted reasons why a worldview based on the conspiracy myth slash theory was untenable. Even if the elders of Zion were not alleged to violate laws of nature in the way, <coughs> um, in the way that the Homeric gods seemed to do, the protocols implied a view of society based on a notion of secret demonic control that contradicted how social change, social change actually occurs and social institutes emerge in ways that are largely beyond our control. Essentially, Popper brought conspiracy myths into the domain of science by calling them conspiracy theories in order to dispatch them in an even more fundamental manner. You could say he invited the conspiracy myth in by calling it a conspiracy theory in order to kick it out. So it was essentially a bit of a semantic conjuring trick. And as mentioned, Popper was not the only one to actually try it. Um, what is actually remarkable, if you ask Stone Cold why Karl Popper might be interested in conspiracy theories, then their relationship to his criteria of falsifiability would seem to be the main reason. Conspiracy theories are notoriously unfalsifiable. In the face of contradictory information, they dig their heels in. Um, they kind of like they, 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 they claim that basically the evidence that contradicts them has been planted by the conspirators or those people who think that it does contradict the conspiracy theory that they're dupes of the conspiracy. They're notoriously unfalsifiable, but it wasn't actually that which attracted uh, Popper's at all prompted Popper to coin this notion of the conspiracy theory of society. He was actually trying to kind of like stake out a scientific status for sociology and the social sciences. Let me conclude. In 2004, the British journalist and commentator Christopher Hitchens had this to say about conspiracy theories. They're not even wrong. So obviously what Hitchens was doing there was channeling the ghost of Wolfgang Pauli in making this remark. And what neither he nor most of us realise is that actually we call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories precisely because of an early attempt to treat these theories as wrong. And so this is kind of in some ways the memory preserved by concepts in the way that I mentioned at the outset. 
And if we're using, we kind of use these methods of conceptual history to excavate our conceptual vocabulary, we can uncover these memories and rescue important insights that we might otherwise have forgotten. In conclusion, I mean, it's the particular burden imposed upon, the, imposed by this topic that it's, I, well, I find it interesting, but uh, of course it's also, it's a topic that is topical, it's relevant. Um, Hitchens, he was not a social scientist, but he was a journalist, he was a pundit, he was a commentator. In the second half of the 20th century, professional journalists and social scientists teamed up in opposing conspiracy theories. And in the second half of the 20th century, they were joined by politicians. And in liberal democracies, politics, journalism, and social science worked in unison to push conspiracy theories to the sidelines of public discourse. These are conditions that no longer prevail. And we now have democratically elected leaders who peddle and promote conspiracy theories using new social media, such as Twitter, these new social media have had deeply destabilizing effects upon journalism. The media landscape is polarized and even fragmented in ways that simply are were not true when you compare the situation to, to 50 years ago. And it kind of you almost have the impression that social science, now that journalism and politics in liberal democracies can no longer be counted upon to kind of oppose conspiracy theory that social science is the last line of defence. Without over-dramatising it, the thing is, the difference is, this, I believe, will be kind of like a battle to the death. Uh, and the reason I say that is simply because contemporary realities demonstrate that it is certainly possible to combine conspiracy theories with politics and conspiracy theories with journalism. But combining conspiracy theories with social science is not possible. They are irreconcilable. And it is precisely for this reason that social science serves as the vehicle for first observing this phenomenon in the 20th century. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Andrew. I reckon you pushed about just about all the buttons there. Um, so I'm certain that there are questions. Nicholas Allen. Uh, thanks for your talk. Um, what I was thinking about while I was listening um, um, to your talk, uh, you know, I, f I find something compelling about the hypothesis that conspiracy theories and social sciences are, are kind of linked. And one way of telling the history of sociology and of the emergence of the social sciences more generally is as a kind of third culture right, yeah. that is... That is neither literary culture nor scientific culture, and that finds itself positioned in some ways between the two. Sure. It has the authority of science, but but you know, but 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 it's always in danger of being mistaken as as being as being as belonging to literary culture, and and because of that configuration, it's actually. Literary culture and, and, and social sciences that end up really in opposition to one another, and science drops out to the other side because the social sciences and literary culture are competing yeah. for for a definition of the same or a take on the same space, namely that they, they, they want to give an account of society and of, and of culture. Sure. So I wonder if there is a way in which your account of 
the relationship between the development of a of, of a kind of um, reflection on conspiracy theories within the social sciences can be told as part of that of that larger um, story. Yeah, that's a uh, thank you for that. Um, Wolfgang Lebanese is actually a German sociologist who's that's probably right, that's right. <laughs> coming from. Um, yeah, of course, who kind of posits the idea that in some ways the novel within the English context was in some ways their version of, you know, like Weber and Simmel and, uh, and, and social science, uh, uh, which was being pioneered elsewhere. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that, actually. I mean, so maybe I kind of like I should actually kind of also consider how literary, um, I mean, novels. It's, I mean, one of the fascinating things is I, I need to reflect upon this notion, this relationship between fiction and reality, because to take something such as, let's just simply take um, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The Protocols draws upon literary fiction. Uh, there's the famous scene that, well, the, the Protocols have always been imagined in this context of the Prague Cemetery, where the Jewish elders that kind of they meet there every 100 years, according to the legend. But I mean, it's a it's a scene extracted from a novel, uh, and a 19th century piece of pulp fiction by a German writer. Um, Beowitz was the name of the particular novel, and so there was certainly the, there's certainly the case that literary novels were transporting conspiracy theories in fascinating ways, where novels get kind of then. Uh, they are received in such a way that obscures the line between what is fiction and what is reality. Even if you take something far more modern, such as Dan Brown, the number of times that you really see kind of people open up Dan Brown and believe that that is an insight in, I mean, it's a novel, it's fiction, but I mean, people take from that kind of like lessons about real history. And so, I mean, the only thing which I would kind of say there is that the dividing line, it's a, it seems to be a bit more of a complicated story there because the dividing line is not so clear but of course, once you come then into the 1960s and the 1970s with this postmodern tone in literature, particularly in America, when you think of Don Galilo and Thomas Pynchon, and then of course in the European context, I mentioned the Prague Cemetery, that was a lot, I think it was the second last novel of Umberto Eco. Um, and that is obviously a form of literature which is very much reflecting upon and distancing itself from conspiracy. It has a totally ironical relationship to, to conspiracy theory. Whether they're taking their cues from social science or whether that is something which they themselves have, you know, like this, this direction in literature, um, that would be an interesting question. I mean, um, those people who love literature will say probably, no, it's not, it's, it's something which is specific to literature, and it's not just because Pynchon and, um, and uh, Don DeLillo had read Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style or whatever. Um, obviously, there's kind of interesting relationships there. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, I mean, to actually think about this within the context of the three cultures, not just the two cultures, but the three cultures, is a really interesting idea, simply because also uh, history is one of those kind of subjects which has never known really where it sits within this whole kind of arrangement. And of course, sometimes it aspires to be literary. I mean, even Branca, who kind of like is kind of put forward as the great scientific historian, you read him, and obviously there's a very strong literary dimension to that. And I mean, history never knows whether what's it It's always involved in this reflection and negotiation with these three cultures. And so, I guess, and I'm looking at history here, sorry. I'm 
No, I was just going to say the history is at the top. That's a Peter Crow, and then. Thanks so much, Adams. Partly bouncing off Nick's question. When you're talking about conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories, people with an interest in literature might observe that you're not talking about conspiracy as such. Conspiracy is something that so much uh, novelistic writing and dramatic writing feeds off, and, and you know, it, it makes for good fiction. And there's a way in which Gabriel's novel turns conspiracy theory into bits of conspiracy and, and sure. acts that out. Yeah. And, and if you know, if you if you have a taste for that, you can always watch Australian Survivor on Channel Ten. So you know, that practice of conspiracy is, in some ways, the very stuff of something which we can regard, broadly speaking, as fictional, if not narrowly literary. Right. And it seems to be interesting the way in which this, this focus that you have, which I find extremely interesting and helpful, kind of leaves that out and needs to leave it out. Right. Why would you say needs to leave it out? Because I think it doesn't actually nourish that's the story that you're on about. Yeah. I, I, I think that even if you turn to Echo's novel and say, see how he fictionalizes and narrativizes this, right. it hasn't, I think, really, as you implied before, like referring to that novel postmodern, it hasn't really advanced understanding of the work being done here, I think, sure. that, that you were doing on. on yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be told that that's wrong, but it seems to me, in any case, that there is a divergence. And, and I, I, the last thing I want to be heard to say is that you've somehow forgotten to talk about something you needed to talk about. Yeah. I've forgotten to talk about a few things, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I appreciate that. I mean, conspiracy is... I mean, I'll have to see whether I kind of like it fits within this project because, I mean, I began in the early modern and I, I've moved kind of obviously as a result of this work into the modern, but there's a long story to be told about conspiracy. conspiracy. I, my, kind of my line is that the idea that we kind of think about conspiracy theories in terms of conspiracy, it seems so self-evident, but it's not. If you kind of take what is the classical conspiracy, which is the assassination of Caesar, um, then you compare that to what I kind of mentioned half in jest, you know, fake moon landings. There's a very big difference between that, the, the, assassinate, the, the actual conspiracy to assassinate Caesar and this kind of mass deception. Uh, and so conspiracy becomes a very kind of a, a pliable concept. One other thing uh, which I also just wanted to mention, uh, which I haven't picked up on, um, is the, is the, the, the Def, uh, defects or the deficiencies of the concept of uh, conspiracy theory simply on the grounds that Popper admitted that conspiracies actually do occur. And I mean, that has a role, therefore, in, like, if you read Don DeLillo's account of the, the Kennedy assassination, he's kind of talking about conspiracies within conspiracy the conspiracy theories as a way of uh, pushing the conspiracy, and it's very mimetic and very kind of, like, uh, um, entangled. Um, and I just kind of think that... Um, uh, what I'm trying to do, in, or what I will eventually try to do, is actually just kind of prise open that relationship between conspiracy and conspiracy theory, which is really not, not self-evident. Uh, there's something else which I wanted to say there also. I'll come back to it, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, continue about Ryan, how it worked for me, because this might be yeah. a question to see more intelligent than it did come 
What happens when conspiracy theorists are to be true? It's yeah, going to be across, across your whole, Very good. Your whole, <laughs> your whole presentation, and of course, especially towards we, as we get to Karl Popper, um, towards the end. Um, what happens with conspiracy theories? Is it still a conspiracy theory if it turns out to have a big ground in fact? <coughs> and I guess I'm wondering, my thought there is that there's <coughs> excuse me, a bit of progress to be made, not by thinking about conspiracy theories, as you have been doing, but by thinking about conspiracy theorists. Right. And, and that, you know, the conspiracy theorist is someone who doesn't have an appropriate relationship to evidence. Yes. Because, which means that they can't tell when it's conspiracy theory turns out to be true or false. You know, Thank you. About everything that Trump's done. It was Elizabeth Warren's tool for the presidency sunk by Facebook and Google. We probably don't know yet. Right. It may bother me. <laughs> so that actually is a useful question because it actually picks up on what I was... Sorry, I just lost the train of my thought. Um, the, I've given you a shortened version and talking about things which I've kind of left out or forgotten, I actually have given you a somewhat foreshortened and one-sided account of the conspiracy theory of... Uh, the, sorry, the conceptual history of conspiracy theory. Um, it's more complicated. And the thing is that in actual fact, uh, we find conspiracy theory emerging in two contexts. There's this one context of social science, and now I can be reproached for actually having ignored the other context which addresses, which comes to what you were actually talking about, real conspiracies that were uncovered in the context of forensics. And forensics in the late 19th century began to establish itself as a science and began to adopt scientific vocabulary. And so we find their talk of the conspiracy theory, which might possibly explain this assassination in opposition to the lone assassin theory. And uh, if you actually have a look at this language, the reason, I mean, it's not connected to intellectual biography. It's language which you find in newspapers and a lot of the time in kind of like anonymous criminal uh, journalism, journalism about crimes, where there's this uptake of scientific vocabulary on the part of journalists, but also because they're observing developments in the field of forensics. And so the interesting thing about that is that in that context, conspiracy theory, um, and I remember reading... Peter's book on uh, the, the, the territories of uh, religion and science, and I mean, you pay attention there to simply the use of plural, singular, indefinite articles. And it made me also think along these lines that in this context, you only ever find talk of the conspiracy theory. It's simply a name for one particular explanation, which is totally plausible and might turn out to be true, as you said. Uh, it's not recognized as a generic object, and it's a, as a generic object that it is actually kind of um, identified in the social sciences and as a generic object which is also a problematic object uh, because it seems to uh, thwart and violate the rules, of, uh, the, the rules of scientific discourse and the rules of evidence and whatnot. Just as a last point also... But, but that begs the question, of course, doesn't it? It's because... Well, the, the thing... You, like, like, you don't want to presume that it's false to, to be a member of the family. Um, yes. Otherwise, you're, you're full short of your ability to acquire scientifically to its true velocity. Exactly. And so, exactly. So, I mean, it's a, it's a prejudice. In some ways, this we're talking about in the conspiracy theories as the generic object is a, as a prejudice which we have uh, inherited from the social sciences towards explanation, explanations which might turn out to be totally true. All I'm saying is that basically you excavate once more the conceptual history and you find that it is actually kind of a polyvalent concept 
that contains both a background in forensics and a background in social sciences. When it comes to the forensics, there's not a conspiracy theory for forensics. There's nothing which is wrong about it per se. Conspiracy theory for the social sciences, it is problematic. Per, it is in itself problematic. And that's just simply the complexity of the, the, what we're dealing with. Just very quickly, as you mentioned also conspiracy theories. Um, and so that's another step in the whole conceptual history. And I would say that the conspiracy theorist, what I tried to show is with Richard Hofstadter talking about the paranoid style. We have once more this, uh, this notion of a psychological approach. And when conspiracy theory and the paranoid style meet, the love child is the conspiracy theorist, you might actually say, because you have the, the psychological profile focus on the individual uh, meeting with the conspiracy theory, producing the conspiracy theorist. And uh, that's the kind of a story. It, um, Ian Hacking has this wonderful essay about making up people. That you know, within society, there's a repertoire of certain types. Uh, you know, like he talks about the pervert. I think is one thing which wasn't all. The pervert is not a type that has always existed. It emerges in you can read Foucault. You know, it emerges in the, the 18th and the 19th century. The conspiracy theorist as a type, as a possibility, which humans can be. Uh, emerges in the 1970s in the wake of this kind of intersection of paranoid style conspiracy theory. Um, Phil and Tom mm. and then Peter. Yeah, thanks, mate. This is just, just to ask you if you talk a little bit more about that, uh, that uh, theory on the one side and myth on the other, because it does seem to me seem to me to be a sense in which were you interested in exposing these things as what you think they are conspiracies then the notion of myth might do a lot better work than the notion of theory. Right. Uh, for any number of reasons. One, because myths are about total world pictures. And sure. Obviously, theories imply that. Um, myth often gives you a chance to play around with the Manichaean side. Yes. You know, at the core of conspiracy theories, it's got that Manichaean edge. So it's just a question of whether whether the work that could be done on conspiracy theories has been ill-served by turning them from conspiracy myths into conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I would be, if you want to start, if you want to once more kind of push this line of saying let's replace conspiracy theory with conspiracy myth, I would be on board. Um, also, I think, you know, devil theory might be, uh, devil theory will get away from a lot of these problems that we've just been discussing about the fact that there really are devils. Most of us, I kind of think, are on the same page that, you know, the devil is a kind of like, has no real kind of place to, in our, maybe there are some who differ, I don't know, but I mean, it does that, yeah. But I mean, that's why I kind of, I think in some ways, the, the <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's intriguing, we'll talk about that later on. <laughs> but uh, the, the, what I've simply become aware of in dealing with, um, in, you know, when it comes to conceptual history, is there is no perfect concept. I mean, you're, we, could, we could latch onto conspiracy myths, and I think after a short while, you would find, oh, conspiracy myths have got their problems actually also. Um, conspiracy theory has the problem, as I mentioned before, that there really are conspiracies, and Popper was aware of that. The paranoid style, which Hofstadter conceived, has the problem that, it, that he's not really talking about clinical paranoia. So all these kind of concepts get introduced not simply as this is the perfect label, but there's always these kind of caveats and qualifications. And I just my suspicion is that I can understand where you're coming from, 
But I think, you know, as the discourse would unfold, you'd start to notice, oh, there are kind of shortcomings to the concept of conspiracy myth also. But I, can, I, I hear what you're saying, and in some ways it does capture, you know, the Manichaean qualities of uh, conspiracy. But so, so does devil theory. Or maybe we should be talking about devil myth. That's not my idea. I never thought of it. Well, you would know, wouldn't you? That's <laughs> <laughs> biography of the devil. <laughs> oh, of course, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that's got to be in the literature that's stuff, in the bibliography, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking, politically, the, sort of the role of the conspiracy theory, it almost doesn't relate so much to knowledge, it's about justifying violence. So, whether that's a Nazi theory about Jewish people justifying that violence, or contemporary Euro-American white fascists, with the whole myth of the ethnic replacement, the white replacement. Sure. It's sort of, the fact that it's clearly not true doesn't really matter, because it's about justifying violence against people of colour, against, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and another thing, sort of Steve Bannon, a contemporary sort of conservative, postmodern conservative almost, he's a massive conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Do you think that there's a connection between political conspiracy theories and far-right conservative neo-reactionaries? Because historically... Yeah, no, I hear you, I hear you. I see where you're coming from. Um, the book which has actually come out recently, which puts an interesting spin on what I've been talking about, is actually by Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Moorhead. It's called A Lot of People Are Sane. And it claims that there's basically been a new development. And it's talking about conspiracy. She says there's conspiracy. What we're looking at with Trump um, is conspiracy without the theory. That there's really no effort on... You know, when you look at the claims for hoax or witch hunt or, you know, no real effort to explain anything. It's simply something which is used for effect and also kind of like there's a latent violence there. And, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why also perhaps you'd say social science and conspiracy theory are kind of natural antagonists because conspiracy, social science, sorry, aspires to neutrality. And there are problems, there are critiques of social science for precisely that reason. But of course, one thing about conspiracy theory is that it is, it's supposed to um, generate activism and anger and channel anger and direct anger at these specific culprits, these outsiders or insiders who actually are outsiders within the community and whatnot. And so to simply kind of say that, um, yeah, I mean, conspiracy theory the kind of theory kind of has these connotations with social science, but we've seen why that has, has that name. And uh, we shouldn't overlook the fact that, I mean, it, it's, an instrument, it's an instrument to a large degree. It's not just purely a description of the world. It's something which is supposed to antagonise and, uh, and uh, promote violence, as you say. I have a look at that book because it's actually very well written uh, and uh, it talks about, I mean, the question, she says there is something fundamentally new which America is dealing with right now. Let's not call it conspiracy theory anymore because theory really is totally, a, a total misnomer because what you have a, with, with, certainly with Trump, I think Bannon, I mean, if you have a look at the kind of notions of the Great Replacement, there is a kind of a little bit, that's once more explanation. I mean, there are varying degrees, all I'm saying, there's a spectrum there between simply detached neutral explanation and something which is supposed to generate activism and violence, as you say. And I think, you know, there's just a, there are different mixes there. There is also a Sander van der Linden's idea of conspiracy ideation, that uh, once you start thinking in this kind of shortcut way in terms of you can explain it as this, uh, this, this group acting against you towards a, uh, a certain move, this encourages you to see conspiracies 
elsewhere, oh, okay. you know, as in the cognitive, um, yeah, the yeah. cognitive aspect, which can also encourage us. Sure. We'll talk about that later. Okay, so I think we have time for one more question, and that's uh, that's you, Peter. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Andrew. Really, really very interesting. Um, I, I mean, I find plausibly the connection between the emergence of sociology and the identification of this category. But I want to take you back to the analogy you started with, which is the fish analogy. The implication of that is that people don't realise that there's something dodgy about the conspiracy theory until we get the, the label. But clearly, if you go back to the period you started, the early modern period, where we have the you know, theory of you know, priestcraft theory, mm. we have anti-Semitic conceptions, and we have recognition that these are wrong or false accounts, right? And it seems so that, but, but the category is clearly not the social sciences, the no. category is history. And so I guess what, what so I'm struggling yeah, with this sure. analogy. It seems to me that what, what you're actually tracking is a shift from a claim that, and, and so these things are, are at the time falsifiable, and they're falsifiable historically. Mm. But what, so what, you know, another way of constructing what's going on is to say that sociology then becomes the replacement of history as the means of determining whether the claims of the theories are true and a superior thing to history because history has always these uncertainties involved. So, so, you know, so I guess what I'm, doing, I'm just trying to think, what yeah. is the change that you're tracking? And for me, the fish analogy doesn't quite work for that change because I think people are always aware that there are problematic aspects to particular sorts of claims, but that history becomes history is typically the criterion. Right. And sociology becomes it. So that's yeah, that's interesting. I I mean I mentioned before I kind of just threw out the idea of the generic object, and I don't think I mean. The water for me is the generic object of conspiracy theory, and so you might point to kind of things such as you know within you know, what I've studied actually, you know, uh, the anti-Jesuit literature and yeah, whatnot. Precisely, yeah. right? Priestcraft and the yeah. anti-Judaic yeah. uh, literature. Um, but and I think, I mean, the question is how I, I would be kind of interested. I'm just trying to kind of think of the examples where you would find. I mean, are we talking about? Uh, I mean, Grafton's book about forgeries, where we get the Donatine. Um, what am I thinking? Sorry, donation, donation exactly. And I mean, that the kind of Lorenzo Baba yeah, yeah. disproves that. Um, but obviously, using criteria of philology and history, which is different to sociology and social science. My, my, the reason I kind of. As I said, if I was trying to defend my use of the water analogy, it's simply because um, the water for me is the, the awareness is the, the generic object, and they're not aware of a generic object of a pattern. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whereas, uh, obviously, you might have cases where you know it, you know these claims are made and people push back against them with counter polemic uh, and also are able to kind of disprove them. But what social science brings to the table is awareness that there is a recurrent pattern to it, and that simply isn't there at that stage. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. This gets me back to Phil's point about the history myth distinction that maybe there is another kind of category that's functioning in a similar kind of way. Sure. No, I get the analogy. Sure. I mean, I, the other thing which I'm kind of considering a lot is also sociology and history. I mean, the. Um, 
sociology in, Amer in the American context and the social sciences is very empirical and ahistorical. What I'm actually kind of, I'm more of the European tradition, and I think you see that there with my people, because even Beard was an outlier within the American social sciences in that regard. He was adamant that you can only understand social sciences on a historical basis. I mean, he kind of came up, came up with examples such as, you might find regularities in society, such as, you know, like when the, the bell in the boarding school rings, then it's a regular occurrence that everyone files into the dining hall. But the boarding school itself is, own, is a historical phenomenon. He was adamant that history was the queen of the social sciences. And so what I'm kind of like with my people, they're all people who say that, you know, history and social science can't be disconnected. I'm actually kind of now revising that because Popper was actually kind of pushing that line. It's complicated. It's complicated. But I mean, that, this is one of the kind of the interesting kind of variables, this relationship between social science, whether it should be a historical or and history. And, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, if you think about the guys that Ian works with, where sociology and history, these are guys that are influenced by Kant. They're trying to yes. history. So, so you do get that, exactly. that, that blending and the attempt to bring these, these methods into history. Sure. So, but it, but it veers off in an interesting direction in the American context because there it does become very ahistorical. And on the other hand, I have, just as a last point, I just have to say, I mean, I'm not entirely opposed to the idea that an ahistor... We, we as historians, I know you said before that you know, history is the queen of the science and whatnot and, uh, and is at the top, but not everything is historical. Um, I mean, if we just take something such as money as a currency of exchange, it's not the case that money was invented at one place and disseminated elsewhere. Money as a kind of abstract phenomenon, as a currency of exchange, emerges in very different historical contexts because it just kind of it conforms to a logic of human interaction. It's not just purely historical. And so I can understand why, you know, like it's, it's just interesting to kind of consider this relationship between history and social science, which tends to be ahistorical. And we as historians say, oh, it's ahistorical, you've always got to historically contextualise. I don't know if that's entirely true, that I mean, there is a, there is a validity to social science. Yeah. Sorry, I've got... So, uh, well, conspiracy or stuff? Have to keep it pithy, Fred. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, you conspiracy or stuff. So what that's pointing towards is uh, the importance of intentionality. Yes. And there's a story about the social sciences which is uh, told by Popper, following Hayek, following yeah. Adam Smith, which is the social sciences begin where intentionality ends, where uh, institutions arise and are sustained and change that are the results of human action but not of human design, not intentionally designed. So an antipathy between conspiracy theories and social sciences conceived in that way is essential to their character yeah. uh, because we're reading intentionality out of the picture. Uh, yeah, but that's the and conspiracy theories are hyper intentional. Sure, they're putting intentions where there aren't any intentions. That's where the stuff up is majority. Yeah, but firstly, if we read if we read conspiracy theories out of the picture because they're kind of on the basis of intentionality and say that social sciences are far more, uh, you know, they deal with the unintentional consequences, which is what Popper and Hayek were saying. Does that mean that intentional consequences are no longer sociological? I mean, they're no longer a sociological interest because you can tell really? a very narrative story about it. Do you really want to exclude intentional consequences? I didn't say <laughs> I said this is why they're antithetic. Anti 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 
Right. And of course, there are conspiracies. Of course, there are things that happened intentionally. Exactly. Of course. Yeah. And that's all part of the great, you know, tapestry of human knowledge. But their story about social science is you don't need science to do that. You just narrate that. You find out what the facts yeah. are. You tell the story. <laughs> no, no. I mean, this, this is the perfect discussion to take to take further over a beer down down at some loosens. I think because we're at the first Thanksgiving. Uh, the next event on the IASH uh, calendar is, I think, on the 2nd of April, which is the uh, Graham Turner's public lecture. So um, please turn up for it. It's the 30th. 30th. Oh, okay. I don't know if that was the next event. Okay. Okay. The 23rd of April is the, next, uh, is the next event, then. And that will be the second talk in this seminar series, and that's Adam Dog talking about UFOs and agnotology and the UFO movement. So please rejoin us then. <laughs> See you then. <laughs>